This is episode number four of Down the Rabbit Hole. Hello, Carl. How are you? I'm fine, Rafa. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And we're ready for the second part of our podcast in which we're talking about humans finding a new hope. A new hope. A new world, which can be a new hope. I, I think I got influenced by Star Wars. Uh, I don't know. It's yeah, some, I'm guessing. Yes. A new home, a new world, yeah. an exoplanet. Mm. And we're going to talk about some of the techniques, the yep. science behind this, on how to find a real, a real world yeah. that could be a habitable world. Yeah, and not only what is going on at the moment, but stuff that is coming up in the near future. Yes, exactly. And where should we start with this, with the techniques? Well, I think, you know, we should just visit these basic approaches mm -hmm. that we're using at the moment. Um, yes, and uh, we can mention, I don't know, five main approaches to this. We can, we can have a go. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is a little bit um, uh, unproven currently, but if we start with maybe the... Yeah, start from the top. Let's start from the top, and um, a technique that has been was initially used to find mm -hmm. the exoplanets that we've identified at the moment. And I think currently we've detected about um, 1,500, something like that, exoplanets. Mm -hmm. And most of the early exoplanets were huge um, planetary bodies like gas giants and things like this. Yeah, And these were actually found using a, a technique... Uh, that detects the wobble of the star around uh -huh. which the planet is going. And this wobble is obviously not something you can see just by looking through a normal telescope. No. And, mm -hmm. and I was trying to think of an analogy as to how you might describe why the star is wobbling. And the best thing I could come up with, and it may not be very good, but... I'll share it anyway, which is if you could imagine um, tying a medicine ball, which is obviously very heavy, to a mm -hmm. rope and then kind of swinging that rope round, turning yourself around and swinging the medicine ball, you'd very quickly find that you'd have to kind of lean back to uh, compensate for the mass of the medicine ball trying to pull you, to pull. Mm -hmm. pull you in that direction, right? And... Obviously, stars don't lean back, so they tend to move about on their axis mm -hmm. with the mass of the planet going around them. So it is that wobble caused by the mass of the planet mm -hmm. that they're detecting. And, uh, of course, you can imagine that if you had a star system with just one planet going around it, then although obviously it would be incredibly difficult to make this measurement. Uh, imagine if there are several planets going mm -hmm. around the star. How do you separate out all the signals? Yes. But well, that is how we did it. That would be just like a first technique mm. to identify if there's a planet. But even with that, uh, what appears to be a pretty simple technique, you might say to yourself, ah. you know, what, what can you detect once you've detected the wobble? Yeah, we but, don't know exactly what it is, actually. Well, they can actually derive a number of things by uh -huh. by looking, knowing the mass of the star, mm -hmm. and then looking at the wobble, they can then estimate the mass of the object that would 
have to exist to cause that amount of wobble. Mm-hmm. So they can actually infer various things about the object, but not too much, obviously. Certainly not whether they have a branch of um, Starbucks there or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> no detail, right? Yeah. So, uh, so that, that was the earliest technique, and that was very quickly followed, or possibly even around the same time, with this transit. That transit which, uh, technique. Which kind of is more intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, pretty simply... If you could imagine a candle and you moved your mm-hmm. finger in front of the flame, clearly you can see that the amount of light coming into your eye diminish. Same thing with um, a star. So, yeah, as, if an object crosses in front of yeah, it. As long as it's, we can see on the orbital plane mm-hmm. of the system. So obviously it only works if the planet is on a sight line with Earth going around its sun. Yeah. From your point of, from our of point, reference, yeah. Exactly, from our point of view. Then um, then we can measure this, um, the occultation, the dip, yes. in, dip in the light. And again, um, from the dip in the light uh, and other measurements, they can work out a few things. Uh, and that's how we arrived at, um, mm-hmm. I think, the bulk in fact, it is. These are the two main techniques that have been yeah. used to do what we know today. So I, I'd say is like the first two steps to take. Uh, Once you have those two steps done, maybe you can go to something more sophisticated. sophisticated. <laughs> Although, obviously, those te- two techniques are incredibly technically challenging. Of course, um, <laughs> and were not possible until we've developed the technologies we've developed today. Mm-hmm. But in order to go further, we need further techniques. And this brings me to another question. Mm. How do you choose where to look? That's a very good question. Has it been just randomly picked or based on certain uh, points or cues to say, maybe we should look there? I don't know. Me either. No. I know... If anybody knows, you can leave us a comment and let us know. Why do they look where they look? Yeah. I know that when they do these surveys using either orbital instruments or Mm ground-based instruments, they are looking at an absolutely tiny portion of the sky. Of course. It's so small that... That's why I said, is it just a random say, like, okay, let's look at this portion? Because imagine trying to go... Sector by sector, you divide mm. in sectors uh, mm. the visible space. Going sector by sector is still yeah. huge one sector to say this portion is the one I will watch today, maybe tomorrow the next one. Yeah, because it will never end. Well, and these techniques, these star wobble and transit are not, it's not like taking a Polaroid photo. Uh-huh, no. These actually take multiple observations of extended periods and yes. so on and so forth. So they're actually quite time-consuming. And I do, just thinking about it while we're talking, I, I presume, obviously, they possibly pick points in the sky where there are known systems that are within a certain range of the instruments that they're using. Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, obviously... 
system. Yeah, we don't have systems aren't uniformly distributed, <laughs> so there are going to be some that are more conveniently yes. clustered than others. So, I would have thought that was it. So, those are the current techniques, and mm-hmm. um, the transit one. There's one other point about the transit technique, and that is that there have been further refinements of the technique where it was realised that it might be possible to get an idea about the atmosphere of a planet as it crosses not the body of its parent star, but the very edge, so that as it enters mm-hmm. as it enters the disk edge the disc. of the star, the light that is coming from... Uh, the, star the star is s- the spectrum that we receive is slightly, ever so slightly modified by the a- any atmosphere, if there is one, of the planetary body they're trying to look at. Yeah, and there are there is a lot of work at the moment going on to try and refine that technique because obviously the effects, uh, a fact to bear in mind, a number. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that generally, on average, shall we say, the um, star of which you were trying to detect the planet mm-hmm. going around it is a billion times brighter than the light coming from the planet. Yeah. And so you can imagine that if, if the atmosphere of this planet is affecting the spectrum of light we're receiving from a star... <laughs> it is tiny, the difference. Yeah. And the techniques to tease out this information is is pretty astonishing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's still under development. But uh, And um, I have read that there are actually a number of exoplanets mm-hmm. that there is some information about um, atmospheric composition, but it's still pretty sketchy stuff. It's used actually a similar technique to ma- to ca- manage the atmospheric composition, right? Right. Depending on the spectrum of light that is being passed out through yeah. certain elements, can give you an information of what is yeah. made of. You get absorption. The atmosphere. Yeah. Different molecules absorb different parts of the spectrum, yeah. so they can tease that information out and come up with now, composition. Like you were saying, imagine the amount of time and dedication that you need to interpret and to efficiently mm. do this job. Mm. Besides the time consuming, which is to make the observations themselves, yeah. correct, uh, taking the measurements, correctly taking the measurements, and all, then... All the computational yes, time. Analysis and interpretation of results. Mm. It is an incredible undertaking. Yes. And, and in fact, um, in a way, kind of, um, brings up this subject that sometimes you get from people about what is the point of doing this kind mm-hmm. of science. And well, I think the point is like any other science, it started somewhere. Mm. And at the beginning, maybe people didn't know, for example, I don't know, a doctor, mm. maybe they didn't really have that much access until, or unless they were doing something, uh, you know back in the alley, mm. buying corpses to be able to 
Check on them. Or... Yeah, but I don't do that now. No, obviously. We left that, right? Yeah, we, we, <laughs> I, it's in the past. Yes, we're, we're now focusing in the sky. It, we are, yeah. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> I, I, I actually, I think it comes down to a fundamental um, urge in humans, which is curiosity, curiosity. And, and exploration. Mm-hmm. And just because currently we we can't go there physically... Um, we can still explore remotely, um, yeah. And um, we we can't stop ourselves being like that, can we? It is what we're made of. So then we come to the third one, Starshade. Yeah, Starshade. That's in a very interesting. Um, that is a very interesting um, technique. Technique, which is <clears throat> that. As we discussed, the the problem with um, trying to understand exoplanets in any uh-huh. great detail is that they are so dim mm-hmm. in terms of brightness compared with their parent star. As I said to you, the the difference is about a billion times mm-hmm. in brightness. And if we had a way of blocking out the glare of the parent star, then potentially... Um, we can develop instruments that will actually be able to directly image the planetary bodies going around the star. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once we can directly image, then we can properly start to analyse atmosphere, compositions, and so on and so forth. And the starshade is a very neat idea. Um, it's been around for probably 30 years as an idea. Mm-hmm. And the technique's pretty pretty. Uh, intuitive again, which is that um, on a bright day, if you're trying to see something um, in the distance, uh-huh. you will naturally hold your hand up to block out the sun's the sun. glare to give you a better picture coming from the distance. A star shade is the same thing, but it's in space, yeah. and effectively it is uh, the one that's proposed, which is... The Star Occulter. Um, yeah, the Star Occulter. Um, it's called World Observatory, I think is the project name. It's a NASA project. And uh-huh. it requires launching a disk, which looks like a sunflower, a very complex sunflower, that's about 50 metres across. And it would be potentially launched either with its own telescope or, mm-hmm. for example, it could be launched... We, to, to accompany the James Webb the telescope. The James Webb, which is like the second generation of uh, telescopes, right? Yeah, this is like beyond Hubble, right? Yeah, um, well, Hubble has been extraordinary. It made a, it, it was a huge step. Of course. But I think this new generation is going to really, well, really make a James Webb, of course, difference. is primarily an infrared telescope, yes. whereas Hubble was visible, well, but obviously, but... Um, the thing about James Webb is, unlike Hubble, which is in a low Earth orbit, mm-hmm. uh, James Webb is actually going out what's called a Lagrange point. Now, Lagra- yeah. a Lagrange point, and, um, which are numbered, um, the Lagrange point that James Webb is going out to is the one that is at um, the Earth-Sun L2 or Lagrange 2 point. And a Lagrange point is a simply a point where the 
gravity, gravitational attraction of two objects, two bodies, balance each other out. So that, mm-hmm. so that if you put something in the Lagrange point, it requires minimum effort to, main, to maintain station. So yeah. like station keeping is suddenly a lot simpler. And makes sense because you're making an observation. So, yeah. and of course, it's like trying to take a picture with a camera moving in the car. Exactly, and, <laughs> and of course, the problem is there are no there are no uh, refill stations in space currently. Yeah. Right, we can't you can't run out of fuel and go out with a can. No. And get a couple of couple of liters. Unless you have some German Nazis in the dark side of the moon, right? <laughs> Are they there? That's a subject. That's for day. something else, yeah. Um, but so you've got a limited amount yeah. of fuel, and mm-hmm. that's all you've got. So put yourself in one of these Lagrange points, and suddenly you cut that requirement down yeah. by a huge amount. So, so the idea is obviously James Webb is going out to a Lagrange point. It's going to be about a million and a half kilometers from the earth mm-hmm. uh, so that's beyond the moon um, but it's in line um, in the same orbital plane as earth and the sun mm-hmm. and the idea is that potentially this star shade will be launched after james webb and it will be positioned some 10 to fifteen thousand kilometers in front of james webb and the two will work together mm-hmm. um, to enhance James Webb's ability to actually resolve planetary bodies. So yeah. that's that's pretty exciting. But and but, this Tarocolter that we were mentioning before mm. would work in con- in, uh, together, creating and blocking the sun for exactly. the telescope to make more accurate readings or, or direct or directions of, yes. of the planetary bodies because. Um, um, because obviously blocking out the, the the parent star's glare is the big problem. And just uh, as a minor point, as I said, this star shade looks really looks like a flower. It looks like a yeah. sun, it looks like a sunflower that you can see. Actually, you were telling me a very interesting explica- explanation of why it has the shape of a flower. Yeah, it is quite it's quite interesting because. We were discussing it before. Yeah. We kind of had this idea. Well, yeah, star shade is going to be around a disc a, or a disc, something, right? Yeah. It blocks it out, and you know, it's pretty straightforward. Uh-huh. You know, um, but in fact, that wouldn't work. And no. um, there's an interesting fact as to why it wouldn't work, and that is there's a uh, a um, a phenomena that. Which is called Fresnel lensing uh-huh. that occurs when a disc is placed in the path of a beam of light, and the outer edge, edge of the disc, the very edges of the disc on mm-hmm. the on the shadow side, act as if they're a kind of a annular lens, and they actually produce in the shadow uh-huh. that is cast by the disc, they produce a sp- it produces a spot of light. A spot. It's like concentrating after yeah. through the edges, sh- yeah, like focusing. A, like a lens. It's called, yeah. uh-huh. and, it, and it's called the spot of Arago, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And, and the petal shape of the star shade is specifically designed to shift this bright spot out of the way of the... Um, Instrument, uh-huh. which is pretty fascinating, and again, you can actually look at some NASA video of them doing tests of deploying the petals of the starshade, um, and it is it's pretty spectacular project. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, James Webb 
is like eight years at least behind schedule. It's mm-hmm. scheduled to launch in 2018. Uh, so we've got to be looking at least 2020 or something before this Starshade thing. It's actually launched. everything working, yeah. And it's got some funding, but it hasn't got a launch window or a schedule or anything at the moment. But it's, uh-huh. it's it'd be pretty amazing when that... Um, I, I believe even pictures of the full uh, telescope and occulter, this mm. thing, together... Mm. Must be already spectacular to imagine some kind of uh, this kind of uh, how can we say inventions or yeah, like human yeah. constructions yeah. already in space floating around. It, it, if you look at the, there are some videos of it, uh, the Starshade deploying and working, yeah. and it looks pretty amazing. If you're yeah. if you're a science geek, obviously, mm-hmm. oh, if you're course. if you're big into shopping, it may not be <laughs> so interesting. I don't know. Unless they put a logo like Walmart. Yeah, or Prada. Or Prada, <laughs> yes. Prada or Walmart, you can send us your checks, or, please. Yes, yes. For the commercial. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of something else, but I'll not realize. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's uh, Starshade. Starshade. And now we have another technique, which is uh, coron- coronagraph. Yeah, that's another interesting one now. Coronographs have been around for a while. Um, I thought I would try and explain how a coronagraph works. And I did have a look at how a coronagraph works, and I, I, I understand it, but it's actually quite difficult to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is using clever optics to do a similar, obviously the same thing that a starshade does. So a coronagraph... Mm-hmm actually fits inside a telescope, whereas a starshade is obviously an external... An external thing. device. A coronagraph goes inside a telescope and does a similar thing to a starshade, but right in the optics of the telescope. And again, there is a um, there are various projects underway to potentially put something in um, space to do that, but there are actually some ground-based um, projects at the moment using uh-huh. coronagraphs. Um, and they're not, I think, as advanced uh, in their resolution as potentially a starshade would be, but uh, yeah. they're, they're promising. So, yes, quite interesting. So, yes, what else have we got in the basic list? Well, I think we had... We had then... Oh, yeah. Uh, the last one... Which yeah. is that gravitational lensing. Mm. Well, uh, mm. well, at the moment, the only use, use I've seen of gravitational it, lensing is showing distant galaxies. And yes, so which is what we have until now. I mean, yeah. it's just simple well, it's big telescoping stuff, right? stuff and taking pictures, yeah. let's say, but out of the big scale resolutions, yeah. incredible that you could go being able to see a, yeah. a galaxy that is much further away than. Have, have you tried to open uh, at least once one of those very high resolutions <laughs> pictures? Oh my god! I know they're painful, aren't they? Yes, Fantastic. you can. You can just go scrolling over and over Forever and over and. Ever. and uses, I don't know, huge, huge amount of pixels there. and Well, they're in the so, billions, aren't they? Billions yeah, of pixels. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. These deep, deep field images. And mm-hmm. This is what, uh, 
until now is the most or has been a technique used a lot. These these techniques yeah. we've talked about are the most common, but and the, but the one that gives us a graphic image of things is this one. Well, a, in in the a, sense that you allegedly. see allegedly, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yeah, there is a project that's been given the green light by uh, ESA, which is the European, European. Space Agency. Um, it's called Plato, Plato, yeah. and it's not scheduled to launch until, according to the notes here... 2024. <laughs> 2024. <laughs> There's a little typo there, I'll not tell you. Uh, and that, again, <laughs> is going to this Sun-Earth L2 Lagrange point, so it's going to be beginning to get crowded there. There may have, yeah. to, be, there may have to be valid... Well, like you said, introduced. if you compare Plato, his po- the position of Plato compared to the Hubble, for example... Mm. Well, Plato. wow! Well, it, it the amount of uh, distance that you can cover at the, at that altitude. Uh, yeah. uh, well, it's I, huge. I think the thing about uh, Plato is that it consists of, or it will consist of, thirty-four separate telescopes and cameras in one platform. Yeah, focus all into one point. Wow. And my understanding is that it's actually um, the bulk of the telescopes are actually uh, one particular type of instrument, and then there's a small, the remainder of the instruments are a different type of instrument, and together they form this entire platform. Uh-huh. And potentially, it will be able to resolve Earth-like planets and allow us to examine their, their atmosphere, which is uh, pretty amazing. And of course, we have to mention that uh, Plato is originally, right now, the first intent is for it to discover planets near Earth. Of course, it is actually aimed. I think it was something like near distance, twenty uh, light years or something out, which is already a lot. Which is a lot. Obviously, you wouldn't want to try and do that <laughs> in a weekend, obviously. But um, and we're some way yeah. away from being able to do anything about that. But close enough for an invasion, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't think we should be sending I, I, any messages. Like Mars attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be fun, but you know. Um, so yeah, so. Um, one of the interesting, one of the things that interests us, obviously, that we've talked about is, um, um, what can we do once we've identified a planet? How can we detect things that are going on Uh on those exoplanets? Uh And one technique that has been developed with, um... Uh, projects or um, probe uh, missions in the solar system was Mm -hmm. what was done with Titan, which was that uh, Saturn Moon's Titan has a methane ocean. It doesn't have Uh, liquid water. It's a very strange place. Actually, I think we can say that in the near space, one of the main uh, goals have been to discover water. Of and through all this, we have discovered this kind of uh, oceans of methane, of water, liquid, of liquids, yeah, liquids, and we, and we have dis- discovered huge volumes of water, but it's all frozen. Frozen, yes. Um, so you know, we have some of the largest ice cube makers 
<laughs> in existence in oh, our very yeah. own solar system, right? Do you think that would be a good business? The, Making ice cubes from well, <laughs> Mars. <laughs> there, will, there will be no problem with ice in your drink on these missions, yeah. I suspect. But, Some cocktails. Um, the thing about Titan was that it allowed a, allowed a technique to be developed where we were able to detect glinting or reflected light coming off this liquid methane. And in fact... The methane oceans on Titan were actually confirmed by detecting these glints. And some scientists now are actually, or astronomers and scientists, are working on techniques to allow us to potentially pick up glinting from yeah. liquid water oceans on exoplanets. Wow. And that would be a moment. Wow, it would be. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And... The alternative to picking up this glinting would be to construct some kind of telescope. But imagine the size of that. Yeah. If it was an optical telescope, it's been estimated it would be on the scale of planetary orbits in our solar yeah. system. Size of Earth. Yeah. So that would be like, yeah, don't think that's going to happen, right? Um, yeah. And then, and then the other, the other thing that obviously. Uh, Scientists are very interested in, astronomers are very interested in exobiologists because they're very short of subjects to study at the moment, is detecting uh -huh. other signs of life. Obviously, detecting water is a big clue, but you need something else. Yeah. Um, and the good candidate is chlorophyll. As, as we know, chlorophyll, yes. chlorophyll drives plant uh, life on this planet. Um And not only plants, it's also even good even for humans. I agree. Uh, that is very true. But in order for them to detect or, mm -hmm. or a stated mission is to figure out a way to actually detect chlorophyll in an exoplanet's atmosphere. And if we could do that, and we can do that with infrared observations, and of course that's what James Webb telescope is going to do then potentially we could in the next 15 years identify an exoplanet that appears to have vegetation mm -hmm. now that would, that would be interesting that would be a game well, changer automatically right? vegetation is life already it's already life so and for all we know it might be heaven forbid intelligent vegetables i don't know <laughs> <laughs> the planet of the triffids right yeah Carrots speaking to you. I, I don't. Generally speaking, I don't like my food actually to talking talk to you. Back talk at me. back. Yeah. Not no. no. That usually means needs more cooking. Yeah. I, <laughs> that, is, that is usually an indication of getting the waiter back and asking for that to be taken back. Yeah. Another couple of minutes in the microwave for this, please. <laughs> It just answered back. Right? Yes. So, Um, yeah, so we're in that we're in that period. We're lucky enough to be alive in a period where. I mm -hmm. would like to be able to think that before I um, leave this crazy planet forever, that I will be able to go out one night and look up in the night sky and point to a star in the night sky and say, around that star is a planet, It's a planet. and it appears to have life on it. Uh -huh. yeah. that, that is possible before I die. I'd like to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to at least be able to see that there's life. 
Absolutely. Whether, whether a confirmation of life, whatever it is. Yeah. Whether whether there is an advanced civilization there doesn't. I, I don't know whether we will get to that point, but um, just any simple form of life, anything, it will be a game changer. But if if we could detect plant life, that would be amazing. Yes. Well, that's it for this episode. If you have comments, you would like to cooperate with us, share more information about techniques of detecting life mm. or detecting planets uh, that are Earth-like habitable planets. And I'd like anybody to uh, come back to us with, how, how would you propose detecting an advanced civilization by, uh -huh. by looking at an atmosphere signature? What would you look for? Exactly. Yeah. That is an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Well, just write down in your comments. Send us an email. You have also a form there to send an email. Uh, you can even send us the, your feedback as an audio file. And if you are an alien, send us a picture. Why not? Yes. We'd love to see that. A selfie. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. 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 Send us a selfie. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much for listening to The Rabbit Hole. Down the rabbit hole, we will fall next week. Okay. See you. Bye. Bye. All names, sounds, logos, and other related items are owned by their respective trademark and copyright holders. This podcast is a production of Darkmind Radio. Go to darkmindradio.com to find out more. All rights reserved, Darkmind Radio, 2015.